In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most things, everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello there. So yes, I am the agitator against the status quo and the promoter of all things awesome, new and shiny. (laughs) (laughs) For today's episode, we're launching into our discussion on low carbon economies with our special guest, Andrew Bauerbank. Andrew's an internationally recognized leader in the principles of sustainability, clean technologies and high performance construction. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Adam, that's a great description of you, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Accurate, right? (laughs) So Adam or Andrew, the uh, world wants to know how you went from uh, being an honors grad in industrial design, which I think is really cool, to the executive director, CEO of the World Green Building Council, to now global director of sustainable services at Ellis Don, one of Canada's leading construction companies. So tell us your story. Well, it's quite a question to ask because a long time now. So trying to figure out how to succinctly pull that together in one conversation is not easy. But probably the best way to define it or describe it is saying. Being there at the right place, right time, catching the wave of, of opportunity. Kind of learned that from my dad. I mean, my dad in his career was the head of 20th Century Fox and CBS studios in Canada when video first started going on to videotape way before digital. And he just did a great job of understanding how to forecast a market and see what the trends are and really trying to grab that wave. I learned that from him. And I started doing that. You know, industrial design is great learning how to do things like ergonomic sciences and interaction with human form, automotive, interiors, products. I mean, it's always great from a creative stimulus point of view. But I really wanted to find ways to combine my love for design with my love for the environment as well. I found up until early in my career, they were always two separate things. And the idea of a green building wasn't even thought of yet. You know, And I just really started looking for ways to bring those two things together. I ran a design studio for about five years in Toronto doing interiors for law offices, custom wood products and tables and things like that. And I think what happened to me is I really got tired of things like mass production technologies, manufacturing. I mean, I did focus quite a bit on manufacturing, advanced manufacturing protocols. But then all of a sudden, this great opportunity came up with the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority. Now, the TRCA, for those listening who don't know, they are really the governing agency in and around the greater Toronto area for watershed management down Lake Ontario because we're on a very low-lying floodplain. And because of the damaging effects of Hurricane Hazel, TRCA has a very strong position within the city to manage water infrastructure. But very quickly, they realized they couldn't fight the difference between environment and the built environment anymore. There had to be a partnership opportunity. And I came on there, and the CEO at the time, Brian Denny, was really looking at ways to integrate new city infrastructures with the environment. And that's exactly when the Canada Green Building Council was first being formed. He asked me to kind of come on board and use my design background to see if we can work with industry to figure out how we can all work together. 
And that was basically the beginning of a long journey that brings me to today. You know, I was part of the Toronto chapter, which was actually formed before the Canada Green Building Council was. It was part of the U.S. Green Building Council originally. And I was on the board of directors for that. They asked me to step in as the first executive director for the chapter. I took on that role and a bit of a secondment from the TRCA. And, you know, for me, it was right place, right time. I worked in the very first LEED certified building in the province. Some really great initiatives that pushed my name out in the marketplace. And Adam, you've known me for a while. I don't shy away from the camera. No, not so. (laughs) (laughs) So any chance I get to to talk to others and network and socialize is part of what I do. And I think that's part of the problem that we have in Canada is we don't know how to celebrate success as well here. Yes. You know, we don't have... Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we don't have the American bravado. And so part of what I want to do is, you know, how do we bring people together to collaborate on projects? And the next thing you know, I'm working on some great community projects with the city of Vaughan around the first Energy Star community ever certified in the country. So that was my project. And I had a lot of these kind of milestone projects that people started paying attention to. And then one day we decided, you know what? The World Green Building Council is looking for its first formal executive director or CEO. And why don't we sort of step up and offer to hold the offices here in Toronto? And there's a big international competition. We were up against New Zealand and Taiwan and Australia and England. But, uh, you know, we worked with the province of Ontario. We got about half a million dollars to get this thing started. And that was enough for the World Green Building Council to say, okay, let's set up offices in Toronto. So lo and behold, I was the first executive director, CEO. And, you know, after four years of doing that, we went from eight councils at the beginning in 2007 to over 60 member nations. And I was the member representative at the United Nations at that point. So I'm sitting down having uh, lunch and dinner with, with Al Gore and all these great people and different events. And it opened my eyes because when you go from local to international, over a very quick period of time, you realize not only is there a lot to do, but there's also a, a lot of opportunity. And that's kind of driven me ever since. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. In fact, it sounds to me like you're the Henry Kissinger of sustainability at that point, right? Shuttle diplomacy. Yeah, I don't have the best, the best comparison, but I'll take it, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, clearly not dropping bombs on people, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that. Talk about right time, right place, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You made a great statement about not celebrating successes. I don't know who said this, but you know, if you're going to climb the mountain, plant your freaking flag. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's really what some of the things that we're talking about in terms of great buildings and, and green construction and sustainability is, you know, we're doing these great things. So let's celebrate it. You know, plant yeah. your flag, right? Yeah. yeah. But there's also two ways of going about that too. I mean, you've got to celebrate the success of your partners, of the project. So people hear about it and too much people celebrate the successes of a project while the project is under development. I think the missing opportunity is we don't put enough resources, whether it's financial or others into the celebrating it once it's done. Like, what is this project all about? How do we bring people to the site or the project or the initiative? And we just feel like we'll build it and they will come. And it's such the wrong attitude. We need a lot of people putting resources to the project so we can use those, learn from those, and build to the next level of opportunity. And that's the only thing I think is going to create, you know, for me, the one thing I'm always after is this idea of market transformation. And unless we're getting people to come to the sites on a regular basis to learn, to get the confidence, the market's not going to change. And, you know, I'm going to talk about that a bit more. But to me, it's such an important factor to consider because we're not transforming markets yet. We're not celebrating success. have to be part of it. You know, that is a great insight because there is, you always get the topping out ceremony, which is basically halfway through the building. 
unless you're a structural guy, right? That's right. So, yeah. you know, you get the top and out ceremony, and then by the end of the job, everyone's so exhausted and emotionally spent that they're yep. just like, there's this dead air period, right, where people are yep. just, oh, thank God. Yep. And that's when we should be having a party. You're damn right. Even the clients and the occupants. Yeah. I mean, they should celebrate in that building, especially yeah. if it's something like performance building. Like, you know, a number of years ago, yes, Lead Platinum was it. Now it's targeting net zero and zero emission buildings. You know, but we need to showcase these things. Yeah. And I think the other thing we've got to do is we've got to get better at celebrating the people that are doing this. There are so many great people out there. You know, we don't do that enough. We feel like everybody has to be in a collective, but there's champions that we need to celebrate as well. If you don't get the champions on board and we don't give them the benefit, then they're going to burn out as well. And that's not a good thing for the market either. Agreed. Absolutely. Now, that's interesting. So yeah. in terms of, I mean, being, being CEO of the World Green Building Council, that's an awesome job, right? No question about it. Difficult yeah. because you're dealing with different cultures, different points of view, different energy standards. Yeah. So kudos for hanging in there on that, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sure. what's yeah. interesting to me is the the leap you're and where you are now, right? So you've you've taken this big worldview, yeah. and now you're back in Canada yeah. and you're working with a contractor, sure. a main contractor, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, contractors in Canada, right? So they have the ability to impact Canada, right? Yes, that's right. And what they're doing, but yep. they also have this. They have this conflicting pull, right? They've got the pull of wanting your worldview, which is innovation, move forward. But they've also got the pull of the supply chain and the path dependency of what's gone on in the past. There must be a tension there with that, right? Surprisingly, it's not that much of a tension because I think there's enough of a market driver now that we need to figure this stuff out. Right. And that's what really got me involved with Elliston. I've been here for two years now. And Elliston, you know, when I first started talking to them about this stuff, I'd already been acting as a special advisor to Magna, one of the biggest auto parts manufacturers in the world, to Enbridge, one of the biggest energy transportation companies in the world, you know, and also some working with some great small to medium-sized companies. And you know, acting as a special advisor to them, same thing, about how do we get them into shifting towards different markets. And at the time, it was at the downturn of the economy. And Magna is a good example because they needed to diversify beyond just automotive parts. And I got them into the solar industry about creating new tracker systems and using their mechanical system to move the panels across the sun, as an example. But they didn't know anything about the solar industry, and solar didn't know Magna wanted to do this. So it was my job to kind of bridge that. Right. And I think that really defines my skill set right now, is the ability to forecast markets, not so it's bleeding edge, but leading edge. So you're just there where you can make money. Bleeding edge, you don't make money yeah. too far out there. Agreed. But leading edge, trying to track that and trying to see these market shift happen as soon as possible so that you can push that company out of the forefront. And when you do that, irregardless of if you're building or something or not, that recognition is return on investment enough. And I think what's happened is um, coming into Ellis Dawn now with that same mindset of saying, you know, okay, let's take sustainability at Ellis Dawn to a new level. And what I love is, you know, Jeff Smith, the CEO, uh, great, great guy, real visionary, articulate, uh, innovative background in law, believe it or not. But he's, he's, you know, it's his family business that has now grown into one of the biggest companies in Canada. But you look at the way he looks at sustainability now. When we launched this thing called the Carbon Impact Initiative, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, you know, he got up on stage at the launch of this thing, and you know, I gave him a few talking notes, and he didn't even look at them. He said the greatest thing. He goes, For "The longest time we had sustainability wrong. We were building projects. We were kind of trying to ram sustainability into those projects, but we realized really quickly that you have to flip that." 
that sustainability is first and all projects feed into that. So whether it's intelligent building design, whether it's indoor air quality, whether it's materials and supply chain, doesn't matter. Sustainability has to be the umbrella. And he got that without me prompting him. He got that from the work that I've been doing with him, you know, really being in his office all the time, showing him what the market is doing, showing him how fast everything is changing. When I first came on, they had no idea what a net zero energy building was. Zero emission buildings, what's that? And in fact, the market in Canada did not know. So part of my ability to see what's happening internationally and bring that to Canada, because you guys, Adam especially knows that Canada's good 10, 12, 15 years behind Europe when it comes to buildings and infrastructure. So I can see that wave coming. And I think it's Pike's research identified that net zero energy building market has the potential to be a $1.8 trillion industry by 2020. So those kind of numbers, if we can grab that and be recognized to be able to be the the contractors that can build this level of efficiency, I call it hyper-efficiency, actually. You know, we're not saying right now that we understand it completely yet, but we're already now responding to RFPs and winning bids based on our interest to to take these buildings to new levels of efficiency. So we're starting with Mohawk College as our first one. We're doing the Brickworks Project. We've got stuff on the waterfront. We've got Centennial College. The projects are now coming in like crazy. But, you know, to summarize, it's really about understanding how that market moves, how it moves quickly, get there first and showcase that to the company and then give them the confidence to work together where it becomes a leadership position for that company. And I think that's the strategic value that I can bring to Ellis Dawn and, and any company I'm working with. So is sustainability being used as a way of sort of providing some competitive advantage there for Ellis Dawn? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But, but in a different way, because up until three to five years ago, sustainability was the thing in the back room where do a CSR report, you know, do a lead building, you know, <laughs> submit your papers to CAGBC and you're sustainable. Yeah. It's it had to become much more sophisticated really quickly because what we're talking about here is using the, I'll call it the understanding of sustainability over the past number of years and ramping that up to make sure sustainability can be the driver to transform markets to a low carbon economy. And the issue for me has been that, you know, you get something like, let's just use LEED as an example. I'm not bashing LEED. I mean, LEED's great. We're doing a lot of projects right now, and LEED version 4 is, is coming on strong, and they're pushing their new zero emissions framework and everything. But at the same time, with all the work that the Green Building Councils have done, U.S., Canada, and others, to put LEED into the marketplace, still only 20% of buildings internationally can be classified as a certified green building. That's not market transformation. So what's going to get us a tip, a market, so that if we try and hit our international climate change goals, irregardless of Trump in the the market, if we're going to hit these international goals, you know, which is 80% more efficient than we are now, the 20% that we're doing is not going to cut it. And what our Canadian commitments are to climate change internationally, what the Canadian government has committed to the UN really states that we have such an aggressive target now, it's almost equating it to every building in this country being certified as LEED Platinum. And people don't quite get their heads around that. No. The magnitude of efficiency that we have to hit. And so the buildings that we're doing, retrofitting and new, have to go to a whole new level of efficiency. And what I don't want to do, say to the market, that we understand that yet. Even as a big company as we are, as soon as anybody says they can do this and they get it, they're just feeding you a line to get the business. 
What I do say is we are eager to get on top of it, to learn it, to become the best at it as quickly as possible. And we want to work with our clients together to achieve that. And let's do that together. And that's that collaborative model. It's the cross-sector opportunities to, to look at new technologies. And it's the way to look at big scale projects like hospitals, airports, light rail transit systems, city infrastructure, talking about resilient design and planning, all of that has to work together. And the only way we're going to do that is that big, large scale companies step up and take the leadership in this area. Agreed. Absolutely. You know, it's, I don't know if people really understand the magnitude that, you know, when you build an airport, for example, it's not like you're going to build another one. Like, you know, five years down the road, like these are for all intents and purposes, these are permanent structures. And unless they're built to these low carbon principles, they become we're building unsustainability into our infrastructure. And I don't know if the I mean, there's some parts of the world where the culture gets that, but certainly not. That's not the case in North America. No, not at all. I mean, but at the same time, if we do it right, it's a real opportunity for the leaders that get it. It's a real business opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what I grabbed onto early on. When I started putting the strategy together for what we're going to do at Ellis Dawn, what I did not want to happen is to create a strategy for Ellis Dawn. It becomes a CSR strategy and sits on a shelf somewhere. Yeah. I said, I'm not interested in that. I'm not coming on board if that's what we're going to do. The idea here is... How do we penetrate the market so it becomes greater than the sum of our parts? And to do that, we have to engage other companies. So I went out and I picked some of the biggest and most influential companies in the country to work with us. We have Cisco, we have BASF, we have Mitsubishi, you know, we have WSP. I kind of picked different companies in different areas, you know, Avis and Young Real Estate, Oz Energy and Cricket Energy. And the way the new companies are coming on board now, we're talking to 3M and others as well. But I don't want to create a new organization or NGO. That's not what this is. This is groups. This is big companies that have the resources that can explore the real levels of efficiency that we're talking about and can put resources to that, to a client project, and make that happen quickly. And that's the value, I think, is the market is now looking at the carbon impact initiative that we launched as greater than just Ellis Dawn. It's a strategy vision where multiple companies come together. And part of our strategy is how do we encourage SMEs or small to medium-sized companies with new technologies, how do we help them get in the market? Because clients, if they're going to hit these new targets of efficiency, they might not necessarily want to take a gamble on a new technology, but they're going to have to if they're going to achieve these new targets. So can we as large companies embrace these new technologies, demonstrate them, showcase them to the client, back them up to some degree, and then encourage the use of those technologies. And then what happens is the project benefits from the technology, Mm -hmm. the company grows, so that's good for the economy and for jobs, everybody benefits. And why not look at that company? Perhaps that's an opportunity for an acquisition. So the idea of investment and economic growth and stimulus, that to me is low carbon economic thinking. It's beyond sustainability. The term doesn't even work that well anymore, but it's all we've got at this point. Yeah, I agree. Actually, you're moving into one of my great theories here of the vertical integration, the inevitable vertical integration for a firm like Ellis Don, right? So Ellis Don, at the moment, what you just described, acting as a risk management agent yeah. to hold people's hand to get them to more and better buildings, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think the ultimate evolution of that, apart, so what can Ellis Don do immediately? At the moment, they can go through their supply chain, 
weed out the weak swimmers and get the great people in, which is what you're doing, right? Yeah. With the people you just described. Yeah. But the ultimate evolution of that, I would suggest, is possibly when you're CEO, Andrew, <laughs> is it becomes a vertically integrated thing yeah. where, right, you've partnered with these people, you're comfortable working with them, yeah. and ultimately you integrate in a great design team and a great supply chain and then you vertically integrate. Then you go to a client, I don't know, a college, a university, say, right, we're going to build you a net zero building and we're going to do it for this number. Yeah. Right. And if you're vertically integrated, you can do that, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think to add to that, one of the things, you know, sometimes when a company the size of Ellis Dawn, any large company, when they continue to evolve and change and grow in response to market shifts, it's often quite difficult to explain to the market how that change is taking place and what it really is. We'll forever be known as the large general contractor of Canada. But we're so well beyond that now, it's unbelievable. I'll give you an example. So part of our success is around our P3 work, right? Yeah. Public, private sector, things like hospitals and such, where we take on the risk, we do the work, we operate these buildings for 30 years before we hand them over so they work perfectly. That leadership of design, build, finance, operate, maintain, we've been able to create individual divisions that focus specifically on those areas. So for example, we have an amazing facilities management division now that operates hospitals and such. Why can't we take that division and apply that to market as an FM service to the market? We're doing that very well. We have our managed services. We have our new intelligent buildings division. We've got our building sciences group that tests new technologies and, and concrete and things like that. You know, and the list goes on. And for me, it's the sustainability area. That's, that's my vertical within the company. So collectively, why can't we take all of those and go to a client and say, look, you want a building that's going to be hyper-efficient. We can build it for you, but if we turn it over to you, are you going to know how to operate it? Yeah. It's like giving a, a mechanic mm. who's used to working on a VW Bug, a Ferrari, and say, make it work. It's, it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. So can we then come in and help design it? We have the point now internally where we can finance large projects. In fact, we're, we're raising two large funds, real estate funds right now, to help to invest in new projects. But then operate and maintain these buildings over the lifetime. That becomes such a good finance model for us, but then the buildings have an opportunity to really hit these new levels and, and targets. So that value within the value chain from supply right through to operations becomes amazing. Well, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate vertical integration, right? If yeah. you can provide the funding, yeah. you've got everything from A to Z, right? That's right. And we're doing very well at that. Yeah. The pension plans are watching us. Everybody's working with us. And uh, yeah, it's great. I was going to say, how Warren Buffett of you? <laughs> well, let, let's just say I'm, I'm learning about cross-sector collaboration by watching. Yeah. No, it's very interesting when you start getting into the financial modeling of buildings over 30 years, 25 years. That's when decision-making becomes quite different. Right. That's right. You got because the capital cost sort of starts falling away a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What I find fascinating as well is is that you know I said this touched on this a little bit earlier, but the idea of a building necessarily being a green building, just a green building, it doesn't work anymore. No. I mean, the building that we're talking about is really across smart, intelligent, green. I mean, all of it has to work together so that innovation, efficiency all has to become one integrated process. And, you know, as I said, I think we're so well beyond just the notion of sustainability at this point where, you know, markets, true markets really have to change. You know, if this part that bothers me a lot is, you know, we design these great buildings and, you know, 
we create these these wonderful interior environments. It's healthy. It's good for the environment, or as, as good as can be. We're watching value chains and in materials, and the people move into the buildings. And other than the fact that hey, this is a pretty building, they have no idea really how green and efficient it really is. And for me, if you're in a building, we're doing this interview. We're both we're all three of us in buildings. Yeah. We'll go to work in a building. We'll go home to our families in a building. Have dinner. We'll wake up in a building, we'll go back to work and we're always in a building 90% of our time. So why can't these buildings be points of conversation? Why can't a lawyer or a dentist or a doctor understand what a green building is all about inside and out, whether it's a home or a commercial building or, or institutional or whatever, those buildings need to be part of our social culture. And we haven't got that yet. That'll happen Probably not in our lifetime, but wouldn't it be nice if we saw some little inkling of that at least, right? Yeah, yeah I got to share a story with you because I'm embedded within the ASHRAE organization, right? We got like 55,000 members worldwide. And mm-hmm. and so uh, a couple of years ago, under President Bill Bonflip, we started this residential division within ASHRAE. We're going to go after the residential market. And so, of course, one of the questions went out to the membership, which is predominantly commercial engineers, is, you know, should we be in the residential business? <laughs> And there's a there's a big part of the community that says, well, well, we shouldn't be. And yet, as you pointed out, Andrew, every day an engineer goes back to a home or an apartment or a condo. You yeah. know, if there's anybody that knows about housing, it should be the engineering community because we all live in one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You got it. So, you know, getting even our own community of, of design professionals to understand our role in the buildings that we built and the ones that we live in is a bit of a challenge. Yes. We don't like working outside of sectors. We like to put ourselves in a little sector. Right. We'll focus on that, become good at that. And we want to be experts at that thing. But as soon as you say reach outside that cross sectors, well, then, you know, you get lost a little bit in that shuffle. I think people feel very uncomfortable with that. But we've got to figure out how to do that as soon as possible. If you I look at the point. fact, I think like five years ago, you know, we were just starting to talk about maybe a bit more than that now about an yeah. electric vehicle plugging into a building and energy off of a grid. But a car manufacturer have never had to talk to a, a builder or a utility. Those three sectors have never had to talk before. So how do we how do we make that happen? How do we get those different sectors working? And now we're looking at things like a big project we're working on right now, which is amazing, is we're working on a new commercial vertical farm design with Centennial College. So this will be a 150,000 square foot commercial building, as green as towards net zero as we can get, growing agriculture. You know, urban agriculture, hydroponic, aquaponic farming processes. But then how do we get the produce that's made there and how do we get that into the communities? And do we use autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles? What's the energy source to make sure the plants and, and the medium keep growing? You know, all these sectors have to work together if we're going to start looking at ways of creating urban agriculture. You know, that's to me one example. We can find lots more in order to change our, yeah. our city infrastructure, urban infrastructure, right? Because if you look at it, I mean, this is the part that bugs me, is, is we're focusing so much on buildings. And the UN says that 40% of emissions is a result of, of buildings and infrastructure. But the hidden thing is, that's only just starting to come out, is are we aware the impact of animal agriculture on climate change? Mm. And if we're eating beef, eating meat, all these things, and we're doing that in a building, or having steaks with our family and whatever, that emissions, methane and others, that's hitting the atmosphere is far beyond what buildings are doing. It's amazing. It's almost like we're trying to hide these numbers. And I think we have to understand that where we live, work, and play 
impacts this environment, no matter how green we make our cities. And we've got to look at the full value chain across society. No, I agree. Not just about buildings themselves, right? That's interesting. I, that's another one of my great theories in life is that agriculture will become urbanized. So you get the rise of the city state. And that's where you're going to really need what you're talking about, the integration yep. of building types and sectors completely. Possibly that's where Detroit, if I was king for a day in America, I would knock down what's what's empty in Detroit and re, yeah. rebrand it as an urban agriculture sector. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Ford's, you know, how many F-150s can you have in the world, right? Maybe Detroit can do something else. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the Carbon Impact Initiative because we saw talking about that at a big level, but can you tell us about the genesis of that and what you're doing with that? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was really trying to figure out how to penetrate that market and really start creating projects that will allow us and give us the confidence to build this new level of efficiency. It's not something we could do alone. And I, I talked about this a bit earlier about bringing all these different companies together to make this happen. And we held a workshop back last February. And we did this with the province of Ontario at their investment and trade center uh, down on Bay Street, downtown Toronto. And it was amazing because we invited about 65 CEOs and senior executives to this event. And, and what I did was I really wanted to get the maximum amount of information out of these, these CEOs. And we're talking about low carbon economics. I didn't have the, the carbon impact initiative formed yet. I mean, this, this workshop set the stage for it. And I had eight tables, eight or nine tables set up, each one with a different topic. And then I invited the CEOs from different areas and sectors to sit at each table and the topics were what they knew well. So they could really talk to each other across tables. I had note takers. You know, we, we captured everything that we said. We recorded a lot of stuff. My concern was, as you guys know, if you invite a CEO to an event, they're notorious at canceling last minute. <laughs> so I was very nervous about having empty tables on certain topics and how that would look. But you know what? Every single person came out to that. Every wow. single one. The tables were full. And I had people up from the World Business Council from Sustainable Development in New York up to talk about things. So we had the international piece. We had the province there talking about what they're doing with their cap and trade program and tax, carbon tax. And how do we you know, learn from that? And how do we build the new opportunity for us in the market? And that was important. Is what is that economic opportunity through all of this? So after that discussion, we synthesized all that information and we basically spent the next few months just writing and pulling together our action plan, what this is going to look like. We didn't want to make it over the top. We wanted something we knew we could deliver, but it also had to be aggressive in nature. And we came down to four key action items that we are now delivering to the market. So the first one is pilot projects, targeting net zero energy or carbon neutral. And we, we're targeting at least 15 projects. We have four under development right now, and that's only in Ontario. Now, Alberta has already called and say, can we launch the carbon impact initiative out there because they have their new carbon tax? And the idea is if you have money that's being gathered through a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, can we take some of that money, provide that to clients to incentivize them to take that to the aggressive levels of net zero energy? Would they do that? What would that look like? And if they might be committing to lead silver, yeah. well, how much money can we incentivize them to go to full net zero energy? So the money doesn't come to us as companies, it goes to the client, but we get a chance to build it. So that's our benefit because we get paid for that. And the government gets a project that they say, look, we've been able to do with our cap and trade dollars, which is an amazing cyclical opportunity there. So that's the first one is really getting the pilot projects in the ground. And if we can build them, we learn from that, we become experts at it, and then the cycle keeps going. The second action item is 
we need to account for the carbon that's emitted in the atmosphere from construction and operations of buildings. No one is capturing the emissions during construction that we've been able to find. I think Skanska is going to do a little bit of stuff in Europe. Skanska has always been great, but they're being very quiet with their information. We want to make this stuff public. We want to track the emissions during construction. If you're building a hospital for three to five years, that's a lot of trucks coming and going. That's a lot of embodied energy and cement and steel that we have to find out what that number is. And then how do we provide a tool to clients so they can track emissions ongoing for their project over 30, 50, 80 years? And when a client is educated and informed, they can then use that information to get further incentives or whatever they want to do with that. So that's that's number two, is really understanding the impact of the, of the carbon and accounting for that and creating a tool that will allow us to do that. Number three, you know, we talked about the idea of the technologies getting embedded into uh, projects. That really is our number three. How do we get new, advanced, clean technologies into projects to make that difference? So that's, that's really that one. And the final one, and I've talked about return on investment before, but return on investment has to be our fourth action item because we're industry-led. We have to pay salaries. We have to look after families. We have to grow as a company. And if we don't understand return on investment and value, it's, this is going to stall. So to me, that's longer term. It's less practical in the ground. But I think we've got enough with pilot projects, carbon accounting, embedding new technologies that give us the practical. The return on investment is actually am number four, finding out that strategy. That rounds everything out. And that really defines our, our carbon impact initiative through those four key things. What I really like about this is just how long-term that vision is and the commitment that you guys have made to that. That's pretty impressive, Andrew. You know, and I th- like this return on investment. Well, if you go back to your item number two, account for uh, carbon in construction, that becomes a competitive element. Sure. So in many ways, you're creating the rules for a new game, which is great. That's a, yeah. that's a hugely competitive strategy to, to, yeah. to do that. And then being able to demonstrate it with the return on investment, I mean, how could you not get excited about that? You know, that's... Yeah. And I just also want to make sure that we're not reinventing the wheel here. So we spent a lot of time really researching the market. Who's doing anything within, you know, for still talking about carbon accounting, who's doing stuff in this area? And we have great groups like Athena and others that are tracking embodied energy. But the tool that we need is something that works with us during construction. It could be on a tablet or on a phone where you can track, you know, trucks coming and going or propane tanks or whatever. You know, it's available in detail on a computer. It becomes an app-based interface where a CEO of a company can just call up a little bit of data before a board meeting without getting inundated by tons of of numbers. But the data person can go in and really get into the in-depth information within a project. So it becomes a tool that lives and works with the project from its breaking ground, early design, breaking ground, right through to operations. And when you understand your building into that kind of detail, you know, the knowledge that you get from that and the, you know, we, knowledge is power, right? So if we know, we can make that difference. And, yeah. and that becomes return on investment, like you said, Robert. Yeah. Well, that's great because what you're doing really is almost creating a new market, Yeah. right? Yeah. With a learning feedback loop that should enable Eliston, if they do this right, to yeah. stay ahead, quite yeah. frankly, right? Well, there's not many that are trying to, to step up and keep up with us. Yeah. I almost think that, you know, once we do things like create this tool, I think it needs to become an open licensed product that anybody can grab. And it wouldn't be necessarily LS Dawn every time you open up your phone. Why not brand it one of our competitors? Because 
it makes a difference in the market. Everybody benefits. It's like uh, Elon Musk releasing all of his patents on electric vehicle technology. Yeah. He yeah. wants yeah. the market to move, so later on he can sell more cars. So why not release everything? Why hide it? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's that's the that's the lesson learned there. Right? Yeah, that would be an interesting conversation. You convincing the CEO to open source this proprietary information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd like to, I'd like to be a fly on the wall there. Yeah, I haven't done that one yet. And if my CEO is listening, he's probably going to give me a call later. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could yeah. be having an early annual review if this goes badly. <laughs> Luckily, I'm cause-driven, not so much finance-driven. Yeah, that's, that's the good news. I mean, that's again, that's an interesting insight, actually. That's where you get change, right? Yeah. Elon Musk, I'm my favorite version of Iron Man, Right, he he is cause driven, right? Yep. So right. he's met his bases, and Maslow hierarchy is a need thing here, right? Yeah. He's met his needs, whatever they may be, and now he's driven by a mission and a cause, and that's interesting, right? Because I think to affect change, you have to have that going for you. You can't be worrying about certain day to day things, right? You got to be cause driven. Yeah. I'm going to steal that and put that in the show notes. Cause driven. Andrew <laughs> is cause driven. <laughs> I like that. It sort of says, uh, I'm strong, but I'm not a megalomaniac. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of um, in the Carbon Impact Initiative, how are the partners? How, how do you feel it's working for them? You know what? Each one, it's because it's not any kind of expected commitment. Like we're not saying to them, look, you must step up and do this, this, and this. Right. We go out and find projects and opportunities. We present it to the group and they choose to be involved or not. There are some of of the within the group like BASF and that are just over the top, right there side by side with us. There are others that that are quiet, but they come in with real value at specific times, right? And, and they hit you with really good stuff at, at unique times. Others are looking for the specific project to get into that project itself. They don't want to be part of the strategy. They want to be part of the results. But that's perfect. That's exactly what we want. They they choose what the best value is to them. And to me, that's that's why I keep saying to everybody, don't look at this as another NGO or government or not-for-profit thing or, yeah. or where we need a board of directors and all that. Yeah. It's just us all getting together and talking, saying, you know, here's a new project, A, B, and C. Who wants a part of it? Yeah. Hands up. And if right. hand doesn't go up, then fine. We'll let you know how things are going and you guys get the next one. But there's also projects where certain of our partners are not suited for. Like it might be something that they just have nothing to contribute for. So they'll wait for the next one anyways, because it'll always come back around. And right now I think everybody is getting value from this and they pick their battles and they pick their projects, which is great. So Ellis don't have a media department, I presume. So are they, yeah. are they on the train here? Oh yeah, for sure. I, you know, I'm telling you without a word of a lie, the company has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. Right. They see the value. They understand the newness of the, of the market opportunity, the innovation of it. You know, there's other areas within the company that we're also driving towards, like intelligent buildings I talked about before, are pushed towards that, managed services. We're understanding how to manage and operate buildings, you know, and really understanding building science. Everybody's got, there's a lot of leadership here, but sustainability kind of umbrellas all of that. You know, for a really, really bad analogy, especially with the guy with a sustainability background, it's like putting a turbo on their engines. Yeah. And we're, we're the turbo for them. I don't want to be an independent division. I want to be there for all of them. And I think sustainability needs to look at it that way. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as we're doing things and working on projects, as projects come to us because of our carbon impact initiative, well, then obviously everybody benefits because now they're they're 
not only do we have new projects coming in the door, but everybody's learning about these new levels, new ways of doing things. So internally, people are getting very excited about it. And our marketing team is fantastic. We even partner with, with our other partners within the CII group, like Carbon Impact Initiative Group. We'll do press releases together and joint press releases. And when you have two marketing teams working on it, when you guys know big companies with big marketing teams does a lot of a lot of good in the right areas. And it's that celebrating success part that I, I push so hard on to make sure that the word gets out there as much as possible. Yeah, putting my nerd hat on here, what I'd be really interested in seeing later on is once some of these pilot projects are complete, yeah. is seeing some of the analytics on that, you know, how yeah. you know, some of the numbers and yeah. then presumably there'll be a monitoring, like a measurement and verification process. That yeah. would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's that's part of our whole accounting tool process. Yeah. Uh, you know, really tracking this stuff, see what the impact is. You know, I'm, I'm calling it basically lessons learned. Like, how do we yeah. how do we bring all that? How do we not that we're going to say to everybody, look, we built this one. We're experts now. No, that is a, a learning experience, and we've got to make sure we're learning from each project. And we can also go back to that, go back to that data, and, and say, okay, how did we do that? And be able to access that. So we're constantly evolving and growing and learning, as opposed to trying to be experts all the time. Yeah, this reminds me of the conversation I had with Paul Gezi about a year ago about. The future of data mining yeah. for buildings, right? Yeah. So Elliston have this portfolio of projects and they start mining data, yeah. right? Then all of a sudden you can say with some real insight, this works, this doesn't work. Yeah. This is the, you know, this is the EUI per square foot of this, that, and the other. Yeah. That's where some real value comes in, man. If oh, yeah. you can mine that data and manage it, wow. Yeah. And in fact, you know, literally probably six months ago, we launched and established a full data group. Right. So we have, we have two experts in data management on staff now, working with them closely. It's amazing the opportunities, I think. I don't, I don't even know enough about it myself. I'm trusting these guys. Yeah. But you know, every time that there's an opportunity to, to bring data together and learn from that, I think you know, it was a missed opportunity for many years. I think the market is getting that now. and There's real value in, in, uh, in data management for sure. Oh, I think that, that group, five, 10 years from now, Edison will be able to monetize that because let's say they get I don't know. We're doing a student residence building, right? So that data mining exercise should be able to tell them, help them right size for load for for the profile of a student residence, right? Yeah. You know, that's where you can really get into some precise engineering here, yeah. which is what buildings lack in a way, right? There's still a lot of rule of thumb stuff going on. Yeah. Robert, I'll let you comment on rule of thumb stuff <laughs> as the engineer here. Yeah, no, don't use them. <laughs> Don't use them. No, Cor- correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to be thinking, you know, Andrew, like the stuff that you're doing has to be attracting the eyes of the International Energy Agency. You know, they've they've funded a lot of annexes around the world in terms of low carbon systems. Fear using the word here, but you know, Adam, you and I have talked about exergy efficiency. Yes, but you know, low carbon is all. That's exactly what it's all about. But you know, I think what you're doing really is would fit well with what the IEA is doing worldwide. They yeah. got Are you talking to them at all? A little bit. Early stage, when we first started forming the Carbon Impact Initiative, we did uh, talk to them a little bit. I mean, obviously, through my background with the UN and World Rebuilding Council, I know them very well. And it was more or less to find out and make sure that we were on track with our targets, bringing you know, IEA objectives and targets to Canada it was because IEA is not well recognized here. Right. So really bringing that into the Canadian marketplace is part of, of what we're doing and showcasing not only that, but things like the World Business Council and, and other groups that are doing some great work. 
BRE Global and others. Like how do we how do we get that international efforts recognized in Canada? But the IEA definitely was a, was a driver in a lot of what we're doing. Like I know that some of their targets are fairly aggressive in in buildings. At least thirty to fifty percent of the market of buildings will be generate generating all their own energy on site, things like that. But they they want to be able to showcase to the market that this stuff is possible. It's not like renewables are difficult, and they're helping. I think with that process. My my only hesitation right now is not doing too much all at once. And if we bring the IEA into it too early, without the real showpieces to to demonstrate, then it's just word of mouth. And I want to be careful that. You know, this is like a pebble in a pond strategy mm. where you drop your pebble and you and you work on your first ripples. And right now our ripples are still Canada and but we're slowly you know hitting North America. We're getting calls from California and other places already. So that's happening. But the ripples getting beyond North American borders, I want to make sure that we have our story and our experiences and our knowledge straight beyond just my brain. And then we can engage much better from an international perspective. It's going to happen. We have a very strong international group here at LS Dawn pushing out. Uh, Jody Becker, our executive vice president, is leading that group, and she's traveling all over the place. We're building two of the largest towers in Bogota, Colombia. We have a big office in, in the, the Emirates, about 125 staff strong there. We're penetrating the U.S. market in, uh, in California area with energy projects and things like that. So the international stuff is working as a natural course for Ellis Dawn, but bringing the carbon impact initiative along with that will just take a bit more time. But when we do, it'll be a big splash like it has been here in Canada. Yeah, you're right not to get too far ahead because what you really need is that portfolio of pilot projects yeah. to point to, right? Yeah. With some hard data. Yeah. And they, yeah, they've got that in Europe. And we can't just walk yeah. on stage and say, look, hey, we want to do this stuff. We have to be able to step up with them and say, yeah. we, we have examples. Right? So. No, you're right with that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I, I, I don't know if you're aware, I noticed uh, there was a press release on LinkedIn from the Green Building Council saying the Canadian Green Building Council, to clarify for you international listeners, they're issuing a net zero standard? Yes, they just actually did that at yeah. their uh, conference last week in Vancouver. I sent right. my team team members over there to follow all of that, for sure. Any thoughts on that? Have you had a chance to study it? Well, when they were putting it together, they interviewed me and we had a really good conversation. I, I think that it's good to have a standard for sure. I think CAGBC is a great agency to lead that. Even World Green Building Council, you know, they're, they're doing some great works with their targets of zero emission buildings and, and such. I think the framework is, is definitely needed. I'm, I, my only caution was I don't think it should become another lead initiative where you're certifying and you're charging people for the process. When you're looking at something like zero emissions or net zero energy building, the proof is your utility bill at the end of the year. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> well it's, done, yeah. it's not a hard thing. I mean, you can still get your lead certification if you want. Yeah. But you know, go with go with your passive design, go with your site orientation, go with your renewables, make that envelope as hyper efficient as you can. You know, really, you know, right size your equipment. Do all the stuff we know, but do it as efficiently as you possibly can with conservation first and generation second. And then you'll find out at the end of the year if if you're achieving that or not. I think the engineers are going to have a hard time if their buildings don't meet what they're supposed to because now the owners can look at their bill and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm paying for electricity. What's going on? Or whatever the target is. And this is, yeah, this is interesting because I agree with you. A net zero building is an outcome-based phenomenon, right? That's right. There's no, yeah. it's like comedy. Yeah. People laugh or they don't laugh, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> the I, also, even- I also think the problem right now is, you know, net zero energy is our shiny new object. Yes. 
And as a species, we get distracted very quickly. Oh, yes. And we get on to the next thing. And we're not even there yet. We don't even understand how to build a net zero energy yet. And I think what's also happening is we're looking at it as a, as a all or nothing target. And that's very impractical. I think it should be a scale targeting net zero energy. If you have tall, tall buildings in downtown urban center and you're putting a few solar panels on top, you're not going to be able to achieve net zero. It doesn't matter how efficient that building no. is. So I think, I think the building type has to be accounted for. So your scale has to be size, use, location. And if you're 70% towards net zero energy, but at 30% you just can't achieve, you might have to buy from a source or whatever, well, that's fine because the building can only go as far as you can, but that building is as, as good as it's going to get. And then it's where what your energy source is. It's the same thing, electric vehicles. Yeah, they're not emitting stuff, but when you plug it in, are you taking it from a coal-fired generating station or are you taking it from a renewable source? Yeah, so it yeah. has to be that unified system integration. Yeah. It's not just all or nothing that zero target. Right? Yeah, yeah, systems thinking required, right? You've really got to take that boundary out a few levels. That's right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't think people, I don't think society understands that, that comment you made about, you know, plugging in an electric car that, you know, if, if it's, if that power is coming from a coal fired plant. That's right. You know, and so, so we always make the argument to somebody that's, you know, gung ho on the electric cars. Well, if everybody in society bought an electric car and plugged it into a coal fired plant, is that a good thing? No. Well, of course it, it's not, right? And, then, and so I, where I'm leading to is, is all of the stuff that you've talked about, Andrew. Where, do the, where does the world of architecture fit in that? Because you must be getting pushback where, where aesthetics and building design flies in the face of the principles that you're talking about. And how do you guys deal, as Alice Dawn, deal with that community? Well, you know, I, for me, there's sort of two parts to that answer. One, there's the Alice Dawn hat, but then there's also the Andrew Bowerbank industrial designer hat. And for me, I think the aesthetics of architecture is so important because if people love the way a building looks and people like to interact with it, that becomes point of conversation. And there's, there's no such thing as a, a building that's a green building that, that has to be ugly. Uh, you know, right now, I mean, this was always my problem with LEED and everything else. They've always been engineering initiatives. And why? Why can't it be architecturally driven as well? When you're driving a beautiful car, you know, you look at the new Audi e-tron, the BMW i8. These are gorgeous cars. Oh, by the way, they're electric. I would, myself, would never sit inside a Prius. They're the ugliest things I've ever seen. But they're cheap, <laughs> right? Sorry, but I apologize. That is so true. I'm not, not going to take my wife or anybody on a date in one of those. I'm going to go in a beautiful electric vehicle that's that Audi has put out, right? Yeah. So same thing. Why can't the buildings be that attractive thing as well. And it's all part of it. The architects, the engineers, the builders, we all have to work together in that process. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. So we're, we're coming we're coming up on an hour here. I think we got to try and wrap up in five minutes. Yeah. So Robert, if you, if you got a final question for Andrew? Well, I just, my, my comment on that is that, you know, as you know, Adam, I was just, I just came back from Vancouver and I took some photographs of these, you know, beautiful buildings on the, sh on the shoreline there. And, and I calculated that the solar gain on those glass buildings on a per square meter basis is the same energy that it takes to melt snow and ice for driveways and, you know, parkades and runways. <laughs> and, you know, and so if we started to, uh, you know, society would have a fit, right? If we put that amount of energy to melting snow, you know, to keep yeah. driveways clear. But yeah, we do it every day with these glass buildings, that energy equivalent. So that's why I kind of asked you about the architectural side of it because... <laughs> 
you know, it's easy to build these beautiful structures, but if we don't look at the energy part of it and, and rationalize what that actually means, like get, get that into people's heads. I think most architectural firms are getting that now. Like there's ones that we're working with, they, they really understand that. And they're designing the aesthetics around, you know, form follows function, right? I mean, we have to make sure that, that the buildings are targeting the levels of efficiency first, you know, and then allow the architects to really do what they've got to do. Or, or even if, you know, the architects go first, that's fine, as long as we're working with the engineers to hit these targets. And the client has to drive that. The client has to say, look, I need to make sure I hit this target. It, 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 you can't extract one piece of that. You right. can't take the client, the architect, the engineer, the contractors. You can't take anybody out of that picture to make this work. It's got to be a holistic, integrated system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For for any architects and engineers listening, that's one of my things. I think one of the things that really has to change to affect change is architects and engineers really do have to come together. Yeah. Not in the way they do now, where they sit in a meeting like two praying mantises looking at each other. <laughs> they have to actually work together, hand in glove. If not merge, I think this is part of the phenomenon of the rise of the massive multidiscipline firm. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. At least get them under one roof. So we, we need to wrap up now. Andrew, where can people find you on social media? I'm going to put all your contacts in the uh, yeah. show notes. Yeah. Not your personal stuff, obviously, your work stuff. You know, is there any closing thoughts as well you want to leave us with? Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 you know me, Adam. I'm pretty well every social media outlet out there, and I'm, I use it all the time. So <laughs> please, uh, anybody, uh, look me up. You'll find me pretty quickly. Yeah. Closing thoughts. You know, I think, I think, we're, I think we're on the right track. I think we have a long way to go. Time is is an issue, but it always has been. But I think we're I think we're looking at a tipping point finally. And I, I'm trying not to be optimistic. I think I'm being realistic in some of this in some of these assumptions because I think technology and economics and environment are are finally coming together. And I think everybody's getting that. What we do with that and, and do we do it effectively enough, we'll have to wait and see. But I think the tools and resources are there. There's nothing, there's no hidden technology that people don't understand. There's no magic required. Everything exists. Most of it is off-the-shelf knowledge and technologies. We just need to pull it all together and, and collectively make it all, all work as a unified system. And I think we're on our way. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. So personally, I'd just like to Acknowledge you and Ellis Don for what you're doing. So I think yes. yeah, they're taking a real leadership position here and it's about time someone did and they're doing it and bloody right for them. Good for them. I really hope it works <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, good job. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate that. They're being the change agent yeah. and Canada needs that. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> right. And thanks for coming on. It's been great. Yeah, it's uh, great to speak with you. I've enjoyed that a lot. It's been great. I thought that was a really good interview. Andrew always gives great uh, interviews, but he, he was on fire there. And I love some of the things he came out with, you know, being cause-driven, the tipping point. I think he's right with that. There could finally be a tipping point coming for an improvement in building design and performance. Yeah. I really liked his uh, perspective, you know, that they're just a pebble in the pond and they're just starting to get the ripples going. So he's very realistic in terms of what they're doing, you know, which is great. They're grounded in what they're doing. But he's got that long-term vision about where this is going yeah. and the impact that it's going to have on the world. And I thought that was great insight. And if, and if companies like Ellis Dawn do that and can attract that kind of thinking to other companies in Canada and in the United States, you know, these are big players. These are these are big guys with the, that carry a big stick. And 
they'll actually make the change that I think society needs. Yeah, I mean, Alice Don are of a scale where they can make change, right? So the fact that they've got a CEO who's on board and someone like Andrew, because Andrew's real skill is bringing people together. When I worked with him, that was his skill. His skill is yeah. bringing people together, making connections and pushing pushing things through when they need pushing through. You know, I think Alice Don and Andrew have sort of come together at the right time with the right complementary skill set. So I'm really interested to see where this goes. Once some of the pilot projects are finished, we'll uh, we'll ask Andrew to come back on and talk us through some of them because I'm really interested in the results there. Because yeah. uh, that was the other great bit of insight. You know, net zero buildings, that's an outcome-based phenomenon, right? It's uh, <laughs> the bill is yeah. either net zero or it's not net zero. There's no debate. There's, yeah. no, there's no, oh, I think it is. No, no, no. <laughs> we can see it is or it is not, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's going to be a few uh, come to Jesus moments, I think, for design teams when they go down the net zero road. Well, sure it is. And then what's great about that is that we'll learn from that, yeah. you know, because when they, because the failure is a great teacher and, uh, you know, some of our other guests have talked about, don't be afraid to fail, like get out and fail. Well, this is, this is a, a process, a strategy that they have that there's going to be failures, but what can they learn from that is just hugely valuable, right? So yeah. when he talked about his second, uh, like the pilot projects and then accounting for carbon and construction, well, you know what, if you don't make the net zero energy, it's because somewhere you've screwed up, <laughs> screwed up from, yeah, yeah. Pl- from planning to execution. And you can bet next time they do that same type of project, They'll, that'll get fixed. Yeah. And that's hugely powerful. So for all you construction guys out here listening to this, please be inspired by that. You know, they're yeah. not trying to make you bad. They're just trying to say, this is another way to do things. There's a better way to look at things, right? And that's what it's yeah. about. Change. We don't expect our cars never to evolve or get better or more fuel efficient, right? We expect our cars to be faster, prettier, and more efficient every time. So what Andrew's saying is, why can't buildings be more beautiful, better, and more efficient every time, right? Yeah. I also like the fact that uh, they're willing to share what they learn. Like, you know, he said, well, you know, we're going to charge this. This isn't going to be our thing. Well, we're happy to give this out. Yeah. And it, it, I can't remember the name of the professor at the University of Waterloo Architecture. I, I apologize. But I took a, a course from her and she said, and we were talking about, uh, literature, papers, research papers that you had to pay for. And her argument was, we're trying to save the damn world. Share your information. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? And that was sort of the, when, when Andrew was talking about that, that's what I was saying in the back of my mind is, you know, they're sharing the information because we're trying to save the damn world. Yeah. Open yeah. source, there's a lot to be said for open source technology, man. It makes a difference. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.